0: Finished, finished. It's a great word to say. In fact, there are things in life that feel better when they're finished. Anybody had a pile of mulch delivered lately? It's always good to put out that last scoop. You ever knelt on a square of shingles? The last bundle feels good. You ever gotten real motivated and actually showed up for leg day? That last rep of that last set feels so good. Now, you can't walk the rest of the day, but it feels so good. How about walking across the stage and they call out your whole name? You know, the name your mother used when you were in trouble? your first name, your middle name, your last name, and perhaps any suffixes afterwards, junior, and they hand you a diploma that says you finished a degree. Some of you had that day in your life where you showed up to work and it was your last day. You were retiring. Somebody ordered a sheet cake and some balloons and a belt buckle And you walked out finished. Finished has the idea of completion. I want to begin a very brief, in fact, only an eight-day sermon series today, Good Friday, and next Sunday morning called Finished. To do that this morning, I want you to take your copy of God's Word. I want you to turn to the first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 5. And when you find Matthew chapter 5, I want you to find verse 17. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. If you have a red-letter Bible, which means all the quotations of Jesus are printed in the red font, you'll notice that a lot of Matthew 5 and 6 and 7 are read because this is the most famous sermon in all of Christianity. It is, of course, the Sermon on the Mount. Now, this series is not going to be in and through this entire sermon. In fact, today is our only time coming to the book of Matthew, but we're going to take a look at the passage from verse 17 through verse 20. And let me explain to you why. Often during the Easter celebration and everything that builds up to it, known as the Passion Week, we focus on Christ's work on the cross and, of course, his victorious overcoming of the grave and the resurrection. As we should, it has been noted that on the cross, Jesus made seven statements. I'll remind you of these statements really quickly. Jesus said, first, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, in Luke chapter 23. Then he looked at the thief on the cross that expressed faith, and he said, today you will be with me in paradise. Then he looked down at his son, or excuse me, his mother, Mary, and his cousin John. And he said, Woman, behold thy son. He took care of his mother. And then a little later, he cried out to God, quoting Psalm 22. It's actually in the Aramaic, which is translated in your Bible for you. Ila wa, ila wa, ilama my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then just before he died, he gave two words of suffering. I thirst. The seventh saying, the last one, was, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. But perhaps the most famous saying of Christ from the cross comes in order number six. The sixth thing he said, it is finished. In the original language, it's simply one word, tetelestai. It is finished. Paul grabbed a hold of this when he thought about the complete work of Christ. In the book of 1 Corinthians, not our passage this morning, three words grabbed my heart a few months ago as I began unpacking this series and thinking about the design of the services and what's going to happen in this room Friday night, which you will not want to miss. Paul says, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin sin. Is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Those three words grab my heart death, sin, and law. As I begin to study anew the Passion Week, prepare for today and Good Friday and Sunday, it occurred to me that in all three of those words, lies a plethora of meanings, but all of them represent a part of redemption that God has finished. And so that's what I thought we would do for the next three services here at Church at the Mill. Today, we're going to see how God finished the law. Friday night, we'll focus on God finishing sin through Christ, and then come Sunday morning next week we'll see how Jesus finished death. So this morning, I want to preach to you a message simply entitled, The Law is Finished, or He Finished the Law. He finished the law. He brought it to completion. There's no better person to quote when you're preaching on Jesus than Jesus. So let me read what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, beginning... In verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. A simple translation of the word fulfill means to bring it to completion, to bring it to fruition, to bring it to its full intended purpose, in essence, to finish The law, verse 18, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot. If you have the old King James Version, as many of you grew up in, it would be jot and tittle. Jot and tittle. It's kind of fun to say, you gotta be careful. But jot and tittle. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished, finished, complete. Verse 19, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now watch verse 20. It seems rather contradictory to verse 19. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Context matters. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' great exposition of his own life. He does so many things in this incredible work authors have spent Hours upon hours, years upon years, libraries upon libraries trying to explain the meaning, the nuance, the complexity, the beauty, the depth of the Sermon on the Mount. But Jesus had stepped into his Jewish world, surrounded by people who had the law of God, but had lost relationship with God. Faith in God had been replaced by ceremony and legalism. And it had led many to be disheartened, discouraged, distraught. It had led others to see themselves as the source of their own righteousness. And many wondered if Jesus was contradicting God by the things he was saying in the Beatitudes, which occur just above this passage. Others wondered, is he committing blasphemy by speaking of God in such personal way? Still others struggled with the code of moral behavior. He began to say that God would demand to enter his kingdom. In fact, one of the purposes of the Sermon on the Mount is for Jesus to blow away earthly righteousness and to show that man or woman is completely unable to live in such a way that by our own merit, we somehow could earn entrance into heaven. And when we see this passage unfold, we recognize that Jesus specifically takes aim at the law. Now, when he says law, what he's referring to is the teachings of the Old Testament. It's why he says law or prophets. It was a way that the Jews would capture everything that had already been written and canonized in Scripture, everything from Genesis to to Malachi. Remember, there's about 400 years chronologically between the prophet Malachi and the birth of Jesus. So there were more than a few generations who had codified, if you will, this passage and said, this is the word of God. And so there were people steeped in their knowledge of the word, but they had lost their passion and relationship with the God of the word. And Jesus steps onto the scene, and he says, some of you may be thinking that I'm trying to disregard, disrespect, or be disinterested in the things of God's law, that I'm bringing a new religion to you. Jesus said, no, 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 no. I did not come to abolish, to ignore, to destroy. I came to fulfill and finish the law. Now, let me tell you why this is important. This is the week in our lives where we rightfully should dwell on Christ, His work on the cross and His resurrection. It's a good thing for believers to hit pause and to dwell and to pray and to worship and to think about the work of Christ. If you ever get over what God did for you at Calvary, and the victory that was won when that garden tomb was found to be empty, then you must revisit that quickly or you will lose the ability to live the Christian life. It matters. And so this morning, I want to hold him up as beautiful for you. I told my wife last night, just before we went to bed, that I am never more excited and also more intimidated by just preaching Christ. I haven't found anybody more beautiful to preach. There is no object that we can dwell on that more fully captures the presence of God. I don't have a character in the Bible who's more faithful, who's more pure, who's more perfect. I don't know of anyone anywhere that satisfies the way that Christ does. In fact, in my heart, I'm burdened because so much of what is called modern preaching become so centered on you, we forget today is the day that the Lord hath made. And that we do our best spiritual healing and growing and worshiping and knowing when we stop focusing on ourselves and take a minute to gaze upon the wonder and the beauty of our Savior. If you're struggling today, and I know some of you are, I spoke to some of you before the service who were struggling, you have a glorious Savior, and I want to tell you about him this morning. Can I do that? Can I tell you about him? Let me tell you how he finished the law, and I'll give it to you as God gives it to us, always in threes. One, he finished the law because he kept the requirements of the law. Look what the Bible says beginning in verse 17. Do not think I have come to abolish the law. Jesus says, I'm not ripping up the Old Testament. I'm not stomping all over it. I'm not calling it archaic or antiquated, outdated, and irrelevant. No, no, no. I have not come to abolish one single word of that law, he goes on to say, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The beauty of Christ is seen more brilliantly when we compare it and contrast it to our sinfulness. His sinlessness matters. One of the attacks of biblical Christianity is that people question the sinlessness Of Jesus. Let me be very clear with you. Jesus was fully human and fully God. And today is fully human and fully God. He's fully resurrected and fully glorified as all saints will be one day. But there was no departure of his body when he ascended into heaven. The glorified, resurrected body of Jesus that bore the scars on his hands and in his side that he showed and allowed Thomas to touch the evening of his resurrection is the body that you and I will see when we see him face to face. And because he was fully man and fully God, he could fully experience all of the sorrows and suffering of humanity. If you came into this room with a broken heart, you did not just finish musically worshiping a Savior who knows not what it means to have a broken heart. If you've cried over a situation this week, you did not cry in prayer to a Savior who also does not know what it means to shed a tear, He does." If you've ever been hungry, if you've ever been betrayed, if you've ever had your heart broken, if you've ever felt deep disappointment in the behavior of other people around you, Jesus has experienced every one of those emotions. The difference is you and I can never claim to be sinless. What does the Bible say about our state of sinfulness? Well, you go all the way back to the book of the bible known as job what is man that he can be pure or he who is born of a woman that he can be righteous in the book of first kings we see it for there is no one who does not sin famously john says in the book of first john chapter 1 verse 8 and then a little bit later in verse 10 if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sin, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And then, of course, most famously, the Apostle Paul, Romans 3.10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. And interestingly, no matter who I talk with and no matter what faith or tradition they come from, I have never met a human who tries to deny them being sinful Anybody who's lived with any sense of self-awareness knows that we are far from perfect, that we are sinful, but not Christ. You know what the Bible says about Christ? The writer of Hebrews, in talking about him, says, "...for it was indeed fitting that we," me and you, "...should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners," and exalted above the heavens. On Friday, a sinless man died. Think about the testimony of the people in his life. When the angel visited Mary, what did he say? He said, Mary, you shall call him holy. When Jesus interacted with the demon after a healing, he said, the demon said, we know you are the holy one. Pilate's wife, a pagan woman, said, Have nothing to do with this man, Pilate. He is a just man. Pilate, a pagan, said, I find no wrong in him. The thief on the cross said, I deserve to be here, but I don't see that he's done anything wrong. And when he died, the centurion, one of which who took his life, said, surely this was a righteous man. When you get defeated and beat down by your sin, Remember that when you extend your hands up for the grace of God, you reach for the hand of a man who knows the weight of temptation, but unlike you and unlike me, never sinned. He was spotless, a lamb without blemish. He fulfilled them all. Well, when did it start? (laughs) Remember when he was a baby? How did Mary and Joseph take him to the temple on the eighth day to be circumcised. Do you know why? Because that was according to the law. From his infancy, he obeyed every single law. John the Baptist said, I'm not worthy to baptize you. I'm not even worthy to tie your Jordans, I mean your sandals, at the Jordan. I'm not worthy to do that. Jesus says, yes, this is my Father's will. So even acts of obedience that had no application to his life were his representative obedience to you and me. And it's a little bit more when you go back and read guys like Jonathan Edwards, you ought to Google him. He said, it's not enough that Jesus even obeyed all the laws of Scripture. And by the way, there are over 600 commands in the law of the Old Testament. It's not that Jesus obeyed every single one of them outwardly. He never had an inward sinful thought. While he knew the pull and the temptation of sin, remember how Satan tempted Jesus just before his public ministry. He never entertained a sinful thought. And it's a little more than that. It's not just outwardly he conformed to all of the laws, nor inwardly did he not entertain any sinful thought. He also was called upon by God to obey things no one else was asked to be obedient in. God asked no one else to die for the sins of the world. This is one of the reasons why for his own strength, he keeps saying in his life, it is my Father's will. I'm here to do my Father's will. I'm here to do my Father's will. It's not my will, but your will be done. This is according to my Father's purpose. My Father told me to do this. So in every respect... He fulfilled every single jot and tittle, iota and dot of the law. Let me tell you how this applies to your life. This is real important. Don't don't miss this. On one hand, there are people who would look at the law of God in the Old Testament and attempt to live by it all today as if none of it had anything to do with Christ. That's a complete and total disregard of this verse. On the other hand, there are those who would say nothing about God's laws, His rules, and His commands apply to my life because of Jesus. That's a complete and total ignorance, disregard of this verse. Did you know that of the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments that the whole law was built upon, nine of them are repeated in the New Testament? The only one that's not repeated verbatim as having binding over a Christian's life in the New Testament is the one about the Sabbath day, which was the seventh day of the week. That was Saturday. That's why our neighbors in the Seventh-day Adventist church worshiped yesterday because they disagree with myself on this passage. They would feel as though that it's still binding in their life. And yet, the first believers who discovered Jesus' body missing discovered the empty tomb on the first day of the week. And so they began worshiping on the first day of the week, every week following that, recounting, remembering, Lord's Supper, do this in remembrance of me, remembering that on the first day of the week, the body of Jesus could not be found, and he rose again. And so Christianity established this new norm of gathering for worship on the first day of the week. Now, for many, you were raised in a generation that perhaps didn't have access to understanding the Scriptures than maybe that we do. I think they understood a lot more than we give them credit for, and I think to some degree, our own enlightenment gets us in trouble. But you may have come out of a tradition that taught Sunday was now the Sabbath, yet when you study the Scriptures, if you mean that Sunday is the new Sabbath, having replaced the seventh day of the week in the Old Testament law, you would have trouble defending that scripturally. If you mean that it is good for God's people to obey the principle of the Sabbath and set aside a day of the week for worship and rest and bringing glory and honor to God, then absolutely the spirit of the Sabbath lives with us on Sunday. My 10-year-old son qualified with a bunch of other 10-year-old little boys to play in a tournament today. He's not there. He's here. He's in church he's 10. If one day hitting a baseball earns him a college scholarship, we'll revisit that. But as for me and my house, we're going to be in church on Sunday because it's the Lord's day, and I will not allow local athletic administration to dictate to me what my Savior did on a tomb on a Sunday. We will worship on the Lord's day. And so, when when we think about this, when we think about this, this law all of a sudden begins to become something that's internal. It's not that I want to run to the law and run to Jesus. It's that I run to the law through the Savior, that having a relationship with the one who fulfilled it just might give you and I the ability To live it. But I'm doing something that's wrong. I'm getting to my invitation and we didn't get up at the first point yet. What am I doing? Last week we had this incredible guest preacher. He did such an awesome job, but I didn't preach and so I'm pent up. I'm sorry. Jesus kept all the requirements of the law. but Jesus is also the reason for the law. Look what happens in verse 18. For truly, I say, this is the same uh, translation of the word we use for mean." We say it, amen. You know, you can always tell somebody's of the mainline Protestant denominations. You know, they're Lutheran or they're Methodist. It's amen. Where I was from, it's Amen. If you're a little bit more, it's you put an H on it, hey, man. And then if you get real up in the sticks, the A's gone, man, man. It means so be it. This is true. Jesus says, amen and amen. Truly I say to you, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota. Now, you've used that phrase. I didn't find it. I didn't find one iota. Let me explain what that means. In the original language, the smallest letter in the Hebrew in the Hebrew, is a letter that we would call a jot, okay? In the Greek, the smallest letter is an iota, which is where we get that phrase, I didn't find not one iota. Those kids ate every one of them. I didn't find one iota. This means one small amount. Now look at the next phrase, dot, dot. In the Hebrew, what's called a tittle, T-I-T-T-L-E. The Hebrew language, the Hebrew language, remember Jesus is talking about the law, which is written in Hebrew. The Hebrew language is a language free from vowels. It only has consonants. Now, this is one of the reasons it sounds very guttural when you say it. I remember the Hebrew that I had to memorize. Uh, I remember I had to memorize the 23rd Psalm in, in, in seminary. And so I had to memorize the 23rd Psalm in Hebrew. Now, obviously, English was rather new to me. But the Hebrew is a very guttural language, and so the way in which you connect the consonants together, we would use vowels. If you want to connect a B and a D together, if you connect them with an A, it means bad. If you connect them with an E, it means bed. The connection of the two consonant sounds, the vowel, gives you the meaning of the word. In the Hebrew, instead of vowels existing, you use special marks, a jot here, a dot there, a tittle there, and it would inform the reader how the word was to be pronounced and thus the meaning of the word. Here's Jesus' point. (laughs) It's not just the book. It's not just the paragraphs or the chapters. It's not just the sentence or the words. Down to the smallest mark on the page, God will preserve his word. Isaiah says it this way. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Timothy, Paul told Timothy these words. All Scripture, all of it, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. It's one of the reasons why we demand of any person on this stage, if they preach for you in a worship service like this, that within a fir- the first few moments of their introduction, they say, take your Bible and turn to, we're in Matthew this morning, chapter 5, verses 7 through 20, because we demand that the authority of the preaching event come not from the personality of the preacher, not from the gift of technology, not from the catchiness of an outline, but from the literal words of God. One of the things you have heard over the last few years that has developed more and more of uh, uh, an acceptance is this idea of progressive Christianity. People will say, I'm a progressive Christian. When you Google progressive Christianity, one of the first things that they point out is that they do not believe that the Word of God is inerrant and infallible, that it is actually the words of God on paper. They say things like this. We believe the Bible contains a message from God. They'll even say it like this. We believe the Bible is a book filled with nuance that shows man experiencing, exploring, and evolving his or her view of God. This is one of the reasons why progressive Christians, which really in and of itself is an oxymoron, two words that don't really belong together. This is why progressive Christians have extraordinarily liberal theology. I too would be very vulnerable to having extraordinarily liberal liberal theology if I did not believe that the authority was in the word of God. So if the word of God establishes something as moral and correct, there is no negotiation. If the Word of God establishes something as immoral or incorrect, there's no negotiation. And so many people point to issues. They go, well, that's okay. I see, Pastor. That's why progressive Christians uh, tend to offer differing views of the definition of marriage. Or that's why progressive Christians tend to side on the pro-choice lobby. That's why progressive Christians seem to be more consumed with social justice than they do God's justice in our hearts through Christ. You're true on all accounts. But before they ever get to those positions socially, the sad reality is the death of the gospel in their churches. When I tell you that I believe that you must be born again, it is not because I like you or like me or I want to be popular or unpopular. It's because Jesus said you must be born again. And where did Jesus say that? He said that in his word. When I tell you that there's no other way to heaven, that anyone can be saved but by a relationship with Christ It's not because I have determined that to be true. It's because the Scriptures say that is true. And therefore, everything that is built at Church at the Mill is built on the foundation of the Word of God. Now, I know that we could err on the side of being a bit wordy, but I believe Christianity is not under assault by some secular enemy. The greatest assault to biblical Christianity, even as we celebrate the most holy week, are people who identify themselves as Christians, yet chip away at these core foundational beliefs. So let me explain to you without any nuance exactly what Church of the Mill believes about the Bible. I'll put it on the screen. The Holy Bible was written by men, divinely inspired, and is God's revelation of himself to man. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God as its author, salvation for its end, and the truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Therefore, all Scripture is totally true and trustworthy. It reveals the principles by which God judges, and therefore it is and will remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union. One last phrase here. It is the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. All Scripture is a testimony to Christ, who is himself the focus of divine revelation. So when your pastor says, hey, join an e-group and have your quiet times, it's not because I want you to spend your Christian life uh, checking off boxes on a checklist. It's because every single day, I want you and I know you deserve and you need to hear the words of God. And this is the word of God. And Jesus said that. Jesus said, not one of it will be lost. In all of the translations and in all of the editions, in all of the acts of taking Scripture from different languages across different centuries, do you know what we find the more manuscripts we uncover, the more research we're able to do? Do you know what every archaeological dig turns up when they do find a piece of a manuscript they continue to find that it has been preserved over and over and over again. In fact, if you study the history of the preservation of Scripture, you won't walk away with questions. You'll walk away worshiping because Jesus keeps His Word. But there's something more here. Look with me in the Bible where it says in verse 18, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, Not a dot will pass from the law, watch this, until all is accomplished. So, this is not a book to be dusted off, a relic to be memorialized, a piece of data to be stored. It's not even literature to be unpacked and studied if the end is to unpack and study it. This document is the redemptive story of God and it's moving somewhere. And Jesus (laughs) is not only the author of the story, he's the center character in the story And he's the one that will bring the story to an end, which is why he says on the heels of saying, I have not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. And by the way, it's not going away until it is all accomplished. One of the ways we study Christ is through his offices of prophet, priest, and king. There were prophets before Jesus, but none was as perfect. The prophet relays the message of God to his people. The prophet relays the expectations of God to his people. And then there were high priests before Jesus who would go into the Holy of Holies and they would offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. The writer of Hebrews points out that those high priests had to first sacrifice for their own sin so that they would be righteous before God, in essence, to be effective at bringing forth sacrifice for the sins of the people, but not Jesus. Because unlike any other high priest, Jesus did not walk to God's altar with that lamb. He walked to God's altar with himself. He did not lay a substitutionary animal at the altar. He laid himself at the altar called cross. And when he did that, he became the great high priest who then earned the right to be the great king in the lineage of David. So, the prophet relays, nobody's ever done that better than Jesus. The priest redeems, nobody's ever done that better than Jesus. And the king rules, and nobody's ever done that better than Jesus. Jesus finished the law not because he was sent due to the law's existence. Jesus did not come because of the law. The law came because of Jesus. The law was sent to say, these are the standards. This is how holy God is, and you're not going to reach it, but I've got a better plan. I'm going to send my son who will completely fulfill the law. He's not just the one who kept the requirements. He's the reason for the law. Christ's glory is why God created in Genesis. It was Christ's redemptive plan as to why God sent Moses to Egypt. It was Christ that guided the covenant with Abraham and provided the substitutionary ram when the knife was lifted over Isaac. It was Christ that spoke through Jeremiah and Isaiah. It's Christ that spoke through Malachi and Ezekiel. It is Christ that predicted, Christ that came, Christ that lived, Christ that died, and Christ that rose again. Don't let someone gut your faith down to a motivational service you attend on Sunday with some principles and goals for your life. Friend, I want you to know we're not interested in you having motivational talks of principles and goals. I've got something better. I've got a risen Lord who completed every requirement you could never complete. He was the author of it. He's the object of it, and he'll bring it to completion. He's not just who I sing about. He's the reason I sing. He's not just who I live for. He's the reason I live. He's not just who I'm going to see in heaven. In his presence is heaven. He completed all the law. Man, that's good. And he's greatly to be praised. Last point, I promise. He's the redemption from and to the law. Look what happens. Man, this is so good. Stay locked in. Leave your purses and your cell phones down. Your kid's fine. We've bribed them with goldfish. Watch this. Watch it now. Verse 19, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, see, there's great value in the law, and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. He's saying, I take it seriously. My moral code is serious. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I cannot deliver to you in just a matter of moments the way this would have rattled his audience. Nobody in the first century, Judaistic scholarship, religion, culture, nobody would have thought more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees. Their whole job was to study the law, debate the law, live the law. They were seen in adherence to extreme righteousness. They were the pinnacle of spiritual connection to God's law. And yet Jesus says, if you're not more righteous than them, you'll have no place in the kingdom of God. And many people have pointed out, Jesus here is switching the discussion from the quantity of your righteousness, how many commands you keep, how many you break, to the quality of your righteousness. You see, for Jesus, the law was never to be a list you kept. It was to be the activity of a person whose heart was solely devoted to the Lord. We knew we couldn't measure up, so he saved us. And to that end, the law is a curse. This is what Paul says in the book of Galatians. When we talk about saving from the law, he says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So he took on all of the law-breaking I did, therefore taking on the curse which the law earned in my life. What are the wages of sin? Death. But then how does he save us to the law? Why am I not allowed to just stomp all over the requirements of God in my life? Well, Paul tells us, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. The law's been fulfilled. But then notice what he goes on to say in the eighth chapter, second verse, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ. Jesus, from the law of the sin and death, something new's going on. New covenant, which is, by the way, New Testament. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. The law's good to save if it weren't for my weak flesh. So God did what the law couldn't do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. What does this mean? It means that when the Spirit of God comes to live in us, because the Son of God has fulfilled the requirements of the law, all of a sudden our righteousness goes from being external behavior to internal desire. We begin to want to please the Lord. Now, when you think about that, think about what the scripture talks about in the book of Ezekiel, when the prophet is prophesying about Christ coming one day. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and uncleanness, which is not grammatically correct, but it's the best translation. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, and I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, now watch this, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Notice God didn't blow the rules away. He just said, I'm going to put my spirit in you, which will give you the power to live what Christ could do and you could not do. You ever heard about the fruit of the spirit? Isn't that what Paul says? Everybody knows the list, right? Galatians 5, but the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. But do you ever even notice verse 23? Against such things, there is no law. See, you can worry about breaking God's law by not doing or you can bear spiritual fruit, which will always put you in a position to do. Let me close with this. Think about it this way God's the law maker, Christ is the law keeper, the Holy Spirit is the law enabler. Well, me, I'm the law breaker. So the law maker loved the law breakers. He sent the law keeper. To do for the lawbreakers what the lawbreakers could not do for themselves. The lawkeeper kept the law fully, but then God, the lawmaker, punished the lawkeeper for the lawbreakers. And when the lawkeeper was punished for the lawbreakers, because he was a lawkeeper, his life was a perfect sinless sacrifice to fulfill the full payment of sin. Upon his resurrection, The lawmaker exalted the lawkeeper, and the lawkeeper told the lawbreakers, you're in me now, and I'm going to send you a law enabler. And the law enabler is going to come live in the lawbreaker, and when the law enabler lives in the lawbreaker, you're going to love the lawkeeper, honor the lawmaker, and obey the lawkeeper through the power of the law enabler. Now, quote that back to me if you don't mind. (laughs) So here's what I want you to do this week as we prepare. Whether you're watching us online or you're here with us live, I want you to look upon him. I think invitations ought to have action, but I I don't want to tell you to go do something. I want you to stop doing and start seeing him in all of his beauty, see him in his glory, and then seek that internal righteousness. If you're saved, you know what I'm talking about. You can live under the power of the flesh, the old life, the carnal man, you can live under the power of the Spirit. Then you obey the Word by the Spirit. You don't become legalistic. You don't become angry at others who don't. You just want to please your Savior. And then, by the way, look upon Him again because He finished the law. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word and for the opportunity to study it this morning. Thank you for the privilege and the honor of being able to preach someone greater than ourselves. I have nothing to offer any better than you, Lord Jesus, who fulfilled the law in every way. As we prepare for this holy week, I pray that we would be people who feel finished and completed in our relationship with you. Oh, I know you're still working on us. I don't ever want to stop pursuing you, but my salvation is settled. It's sealed. I've been delivered. That is not something I aspire to. It is something I live from. Your head bowed and your eyes closed this morning. If you don't have that assurance, you need to get it. As soon as we begin to sing, come pray with one of our counselors. Go to our prayer room. When you minimize this service on your smart TV, send an email today saying, I need to talk to someone about making sure that salvation is finished in my life. For many of you that have that relationship, perhaps there is something that has crept in that you need to finish. You need to be done with. Doubt. Sin, anger, laziness, lack of commitment. I don't know, but I know Christ did not call you to start and not finish. We're going to have a time of invitation and this altar is going to be open and I hope and pray that it's filled with people who for nothing more come today and just kneel and say, Jesus, thank you for finishing the law for me. You move as God leads. Father, thank you for your grace in our lives. Jesus, thank you for being the author and the perfecter of our faith. I pray that you would move mightily now through the great enabler, the Holy Spirit. In your name we pray, amen. Let's stand.